Hey, welcome to Sanctus Young Adults Online, inviting young adults into God's redemptive story. My name is Josh, I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Sanctus Church. I, I hope that these conversations, these discussions, and these teachings will be meaningful and impactful to you. Would you take a second to subscribe and to follow so you never miss any content that we upload. Hey, did you guys know something that um, between our parents' generation and our generation, the average number of times that kids hang out with their friends in a week has gone from three times a week to once a week. One of the, the reasons that the average Gen Z only sees their friends once a week now in person in the evenings is because of education. You know, school's really important. It's really important to work hard in school so people spend a lot of time studying now. Uh, also, extracurriculars are very popular. People are involved in sports and people are involved in music and doing all that kind of stuff. Also, I think we all know that technology has really changed how childhood looks for a lot of people. I remember getting a, a smartphone for the first time when I was in grade seven and, and just how that really shifted how people lived. You know, I see two changes actually when I look at technology and how it's shifted how a kid maybe grows up. The first is that we have assumed that connection equals community. Many of us have hundreds, if not thousands, of followers and friends on social platforms, yet we do life with very few. Another difference with technology is that it is now one of the go-to leisure activities that most of us have. The number one leisure activity amongst 15-year-olds is watching YouTube. I saw this firsthand with my youth boys in, in Edmonton. I was a youth leader there, had a bunch of grade 11 uh, boys last year, and oftentimes when I talk to them, their evenings, looked like hanging out in their bedroom, on their phone, talking with their friends on Snapchat, being on YouTube, screwing around on their phones. And when I think of that, it's a very different type of childhood than even I had. You know, a couple years older than them, I grew up, you know, being out on my bike and exploring in the forest and getting myself hurt on the playground and all that. You know, the way that we grow up has really changed. And I think in many ways, we've traded unorganized play and unscheduled activities and in-person community for something that has left us to be one of the loneliest generations ever. BBC Radio, they did a survey a few years back. They found that 40% uh, of people in between the ages of 16 and 24 are lonely either often or very often. Half of our age group is often lonely. Maybe you identify with this yourself. Our culture has shifted. We've shifted to this post-social, hyper-individualized, overly online world and has changed our experience of humanity. One where loose connections and where entertainment are of primary importance instead. I loved how A.J. Swoboda, he's a professor from Portland, he describes what he calls PEG communities. He says a PEG community is one where there's a community of disconnected spectators forged around a mutually loved experience. An example that he would give would be sports. Watching sports in, say, an arena or a stadium or a bar is a sense of community, but you're not really connected with those around you very deeply. He then also goes on to describe what he says are ethical communities. And what these are is their long-term commitments marked by the giving up of rights and freedoms. They're built on relationships of responsibilities and formed by love, covenant, and even, if you remember last week, familial fidelity. So why is our culture so lonely and disconnected? Because we have shifted in many ways to a pagan community instead of 
ethical communities, which traditionally were things like family, religion, and even clubs and institutions that were really important to us. So how do we change this? I'm here to argue today that in many ways, this is destroying our livelihoods, our communities, our churches, and I think our society. For our own sake and for the mission of the church, something needs to change. So what's it going to be? If you remember our Citizens and Strangers series that we did this fall, there was a week where we talked about how as Christians we are called to be the salt of the earth. And what salt is for is for preventing decay. And and one of our calls as Christians then is to help preserve the good things, prevent decay of the good things in this world. And right now I think we are watching our world decay into isolation and into tribalism and into despair and hopelessness. What are we going to do to fight this? Well, tonight, I want to present the idea of something called subversive rhythms. And I think that if we learn to practice these subversive rhythms, then we have an opportunity to show this world what community can look like. And we're going to be looking at three of these rhythms in Jesus' life and see if there's something that we can maybe learn from them tonight. So today's talk is called What It Takes, Subversive Rhythms. Before we go any farther, I I do want to say, you know, welcome. My name is Josh. If you're new here, thanks so much for coming. I'm the Young Adults Pastor, and we're in the second week tonight of this series called What It Takes, and it's all about how do we create communities of belonging. I think as young adults, most of us want to feel a sense of community in our lives, and we want to do this life with other people, but we can struggle to know how to do that well. And even if you feel like you are in a place right now of amazing community in your life, part of our call is followers of Jesus is to help other people who maybe don't have that get to experience it. You know, also, if anyone's listening online or on YouTube, we have people who who tune in every week. Just thanks for listening and and being a part of what we're doing. We love that you're a part of the Sanctus family. And I'd like to pray quickly before we get going, if you'd bow your heads with me. God, thanks so much for the opportunity we have tonight to look at, yeah, just how your son Jesus lived and the ways that he lived and the example that sets for us. God, I pray that you would help us walk away tonight with a deep conviction about what it looks like to follow you and live for you. God, would you help everyone here build stronger communities this next year? God, speak to us now. Holy Spirit, please come on this place. Amen. So I want to look through three lenses today as we unpack these rhythms. The first lens is how Jesus came. The second is what he practiced. And finally, why Jesus came. So we're looking at how, what, and why. And I think this is going to help show us what it takes to create these communities of belonging. We're going to start in Luke 7.34. And it's a simple little excerpt, and this is what it says. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So how did Jesus come? The first lens. How did he come? He came eating and drinking. He came sharing meals. In fact, Jesus ate and drank so much that it says that he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Some of you are excited to hear that you have more in common with Jesus than you maybe thought. But here's the thing. The center point of Jesus' ministry was not the pulpit. It was not the stage. It wasn't events. It was the table. Sitting and talking with brothers and sisters and strangers and sinners. You know, in the New Testament, when people shared meals, it wasn't just 20 minutes with some frozen pizza. It was these long, lengthy, multiple-hour evenings of deep fellowship and conversation. That was Jesus' life. 
You know, this idea of meals being a central part of Christianity isn't something that's been lost. In many ways, it still continues. Many people believe that you can best experience Jesus through the fellowship of a meal. We even see organizations like Alpha who runs courses that create conversations. They say that food is a central part of their courses and you cannot do things like Alpha without a meal. It's that important to them. We even read in Revelations, which is one of the last books in the Bible, it talks about the future of the new heaven and the new earth and it says there that there will be many, many feasts and banquets to enjoy. You know, I was talking with a guy once who I was saying that he was struggling to connect with God. I was asking him, I was trying to poke around and understand, hey, what's going on? What's, what's kind of your walk with Jesus look like? And he's talking about how he really struggles to pray because it's just, it, he feels like it's not that important. He just felt like, you know, I read my Bible, I come to church, why do I need to talk to this guy that I can't see? Like, why would I pray? It doesn't seem that important. And I was wrestling kind of through this discussion with him and he said, honestly, Josh, does it, do you really have to pray to be a Christian? And I was like, dude, I think so. Like, do you really have to talk to your spouse to be married to them? I don't know. It seems like a bad question. But here's what's interesting is we would think it's silly if someone was a Christian but didn't pray. But I think you could argue that to be a Christian and not share meals regularly would be just as much of an offense. When we look at the life of Jesus, his rhythm of consistently having meals with people, I think shows us a way that we ought to live and it should challenge us. Jesus made meals a central part of his life. You know, he even on his, his last night before he, was resur- or before he was crucified, he actually spent that last night with his disciples having a meal. So I think that shows the importance of it in the way that he lived and, and also how we should live. Unfortunately, though, we aren't the best at having meals in our culture. Maybe, you know, your situation or your family is different, but for the majority of North Americans, the family meal has gone away. Instead, many families now deal with drive-throughs and on their way to events or sitting in front of the TV or having their phones at the dinner table. And it's wrecked what in many ways was a center point of North American families. And it's changed how we live. You know, for example, in Vancouver right now, more than 60% of individuals now eat by themselves for dinner. There's something about the habit of consistently having a time to stop and to sit, and to just share a meal over conversation with other people. There's something about the rhythm of a meal. There's something subversive about it. Our culture has lost this rhythm. I think, you know, we're too rushed to sit down. We're too lazy to have a good meal. We're too isolated to actually allow someone to come into our house. We struggle to sit down and not be distracted to talk with people to have face-to-face conversation with them. You know, even my wife and I, we've struggled with this. She's a nurse and she works till 8 p.m. most days and I often with my work have a lot of meetings over mealtime. So the majority of the week, we eat alone. And as I worked on this message, I felt convicted about that. There's something that needs to change. If we are to be a family unit together and we're to be brothers and sisters with other Christians, why aren't meals happening more? There's something about the rhythm of meals that centers our life around Jesus. Now I wanna share a a couple ideas with you in case this is an area that you wanna improve in your discipleship to Jesus. 
So a couple ideas up on the screen. The first one is instead of watching TV, share a meal around a table with no distractions. Also, never allow phones at the table. Try to learn to cook meals that take time and preparation. There's something about kind of the journey of cooking a, a longer meal. Find a day a week to share a meal with friends at someone's home. Invite friends to your house or go to their house or do something where you get together and do this on a regular basis. Make it a rhythm. Eat out less, eat at your house more. Have meals with your community. You know, something that we've been talking about is how one of our goals in Young Adults this year is to launch Young Adult Groups. And that's coming later this winter and spring. And one of the nights that we're going to have in our groups as part of the rhythm of our groups is something called a belonging night. And in a belonging night, what we want to encourage the groups to do is not have a video or a curriculum or a teaching, but to share a meal and to talk and to pray. So I would argue practice the way of Jesus by sharing a meal. So I'm excited for that. So how did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. He came sharing meals. So that's the first rhythm for tonight. But the second one I want to look at is what he did, what he practiced when he came. You know, there's two practices that Jesus had that I think are arguably the most important in his life. He practiced community and he practiced silence and solitude. And every other discipline, every other practice, every other thing that he did came out of one of those two, out of community or out of silence and solitude. So today I want to look at what does it look like to have a rhythm in our lives of silence and solitude if Jesus made that so important. In, in Luke 5.16, this is how we know that it was important to Jesus. It says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. We see this in the 40 days in the desert that Jesus spent. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went off to pray by himself. We see that he often, during ministry times, would actually hop on a boat and he'd kind of peace out and he'd ditch everyone and go, hey, I need to go spend time by myself with my father. It was that important to him. So Jesus regularly spent time by himself in silence and solitude. You know, I find this intertwining of community and silence and solitude in Jesus' life so fascinating. It's like he, he's got this ebb and flow where he goes back and forth between the two. And it's almost like one needed the other and the other created space for the latter. One of the most significant moments that we can have in our lives is in times of silence and solitude. Also, some of the most significant times we can have are in community. You know, I can think of many youth retreats and conferences and times with my young adult group and times at, you know, church on Sunday mornings and times with just friends who are brothers and sisters in Christ and how impactful those were. But I can also think of times when I was reading God's word in the morning and I was journaling, I was on a walk somewhere about how God also spoke to me in those moments, how he showed me something new, how he convicted my heart of something. Our most impactful moments in our Christian walk are either in community or in silence and solitude, and we need both. But here's what concerns me. In many ways, I think that we've chosen to go shallow on both of these. We don't dive deep into community or into silence and solitude. We stay in this middle ground where we have a pseudo-community, where we do things like attend a church service, but we never go deeper. Or we have friends, but we mostly just socialize with them, and we don't actually talk about the real things of life. We also can go kind of shallow when it comes to silence and solitude where maybe we take a night off, but it's filled with Netflix and our phones and distractions, and it's not actually spending time meaningfully by ourselves connecting with God. And here's why I think we can be scared. What both 
community and silence and solitude have in common is that they both leave us exposed and naked to the reality of who we are for better and for worse. If we actually exposed ourselves to true community, there's a sense of nakedness and exposure and vulnerability. And if we actually sat alone with God in silence, we would also see that sense of insecurity open up and maybe fear and anxiety, the awkwardness of facing the reality of who we are. But what if the only way to grow and to become more like Jesus is to allow ourselves to be exposed and to face reality for what it is, to allow the mirrors of self-reflection and pondering and contemplating, even boredom, to show something to our hearts or the mirror of a godly community who can exhort us and who can speak into our decisions and to, who can help us see our blind spots, what if the shallowness that we are approaching both community and silence and solitude with are leaving us discontent and not satisfied? But you might be wondering, what does silence and solitude really have to do with community? Isn't this a series on community? But here's the thing. If we don't know how to practice silence and solitude, I actually think it affects how we practice community. See, we can't have silence and solitude and not have the wholeness of community. I loved how our our new youth pastor, Nick, he gave me this great analogy this week when I was talking to him about it. He said, if you remember the story of Adam in Genesis, Adam was walking in the garden with God. But God also did not think it was good for him to be alone. So he created Eve. So what God is communicating from the very beginning of the biblical narrative is that humans are made not just for relationship with God, but also for relationship with each other. And that both are part of his design and intentions for us. So that's why it's so important that we learn to live life both in community, but also in relationship with God. And to do one without the other is to miss the design that God had for us as humans. See, if we aren't in relationship with God, but we're living in community, what can happen is that we might be expecting our community to fix something that God is supposed to fix. Think of it this way. I I used to play hockey, and uh, when I played hockey, you know, as a hockey team, you work together, and and you do things like practices, and you practice and prepare for games. And you need to show up to practice, but also, as an athlete, you had a personal responsibility. You had to train. You had to sleep well. You had to eat healthy. And if you didn't do your part as an athlete, then when you showed up to the game, you might have done the practices, but if you didn't do your part... It hurt the team. And in the same way, imagine if you did your own parts, but you didn't ever go to practices, and then you showed up and tried to play a team sport with a team you'd never practiced with. That also wouldn't work. And I think what that shows us is that in the same way in the Christian life, if we do our time with God but not in community, then we can't play with the team. And in the same way, if we choose to do time in community but not with God on our own, then we're also going to hurt the team. So God is calling us to do both. So that's why silence and solitude is so important to do community well, is that we have to have a relationship with God that's rich and thriving and healthy if then we're going to be healthy contributors into the communities that we're a part of. I love how it's put in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 by the Apostle Paul. He says, there is one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, then how could there be a body? 
As it is, there are many parts, but there is only one body. You are the body of Christ. Each of you is a part of it. Each of you has a part to play. God has called each of you to play a role in other people's lives, but if you don't do your part to have a relationship with Jesus, then how are you going to bring what God has called you to into your communities if you don't even know your purpose or your giftings or your identity or who God's called you to be? We all have a part to play. So there's personal responsibility and there's common faithfulness. Now, what does it look like to practice silence and solitude? Maybe that's a a new word for some of you. Maybe you haven't heard that kind of language before. So here's a quick definition of what silence and solitude is. is It's an intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. So what this means, what silence means, is it's going somewhere with no noise, which means no headphones with music, and that means not sitting in a coffee shop where there's a bunch of noise. It means going out to nature and being alone in an empty house, getting up early in the morning, when, when no one else is up yet. You know, what does it say about us that we often have to have sound? Whether we're studying with music or cooking with, sh- with a show on or working out with a podcast or when we drive or whatever, why can we never be alone with our thoughts, without noise? It's almost like we're hiding from something. But if we're going to have spiritual healing, there needs to be silence at times. In the same way, there's external noises, there's also internal noises. This would be things like our to-do list and our thoughts and our anxieties and our maybe bitterness of that person who hurt us or that frustration or whatever's going on. Our internal noises also have to be silenced through prayer and meditation and slowing our thoughts down so that we can focus on God. So we need silence first if we're ever going to experience solitude. Now, Richard Foster, he gives a great distinction between what solitude is compared to loneliness, because sometimes people can confuse the two, and they think that solitude just means to be lonely, but it's not the same. Here's what Foster says. He says that loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. So in silence and solitude, we decompress ourselves from the chaos and the busyness and the noise and the entertainment of our world so that we can focus on Jesus and our hearts You know, one of the things that I love about practicing silence and solitude is what it does is it cuts through the noise so that we can see the truth from the lies. What this looks like is, you know, we can see the difference between who God says we are and the lies of what maybe our friends, coworkers, families, culture says we are. We can see the sins that we need to confess from the deceptions of why we don't need to confess them that we tell ourselves. We can see the beauty of God apart from the fleeting promises of this world. We can see the joy of the Lord apart from the pleasures that we might be chasing. Get this, both our successes and our failures lose power in silence and solitude. Both of our successes, which lead to often pride and arrogance, and our failures, which lead to shame and loneliness, they both lose their power in silence and solitude. So in silence and solitude, we find freedom. We come home to who we are and to who God is, to relationship with him. You know, this is a practice that I've been working on in my life the last couple years. And if I'm honest, I'm not great at it. I love working. I love podcasting. I love talking with people. So it's really hard for me to slow down and to be quiet. And when I do, my mind will be racing with ideas and with thoughts and with to-do lists. 
and it's hard. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to set aside times where I can have a rhythm of practicing silence and solitude. Something that's been helpful for me is that I often in the mornings will come in early to my office and I'll try and spend some time alone before other people come in and I'll pray and I'll journal and I'll listen for God's voice. Sometimes I get to do this in the morning. My, my wife often sleeps longer than me because of her schedule, so I get a couple hours in the morning where I can sit in the house just in the quiet. I can listen for what God might be speaking to me. I can reflect on my own heart and what's going on there. Also, another thing that can really help with silence and solitude is practicing the Sabbath. And maybe some of you think that the Sabbath is this outdated, crazy thing, and that's a sermon for another time. But practicing the Sabbath is so important for us as Christians. What that looks like in, in my life is on Fridays at 5 p.m. till Saturdays at 5 p.m. I try to do no type of work, and I try to avoid anything that stresses me out, and I try to only do things that are life-giving and that are worship and that are time to connect with God and with family and with friends. And the beautiful thing is that when you live a life of a consistent rhythm of Sabbath, it creates the opportunity for the rhythm of silence and solitude to come into it. Because Sabbath, what it does is it gives you a time to slow down and to reflect and to have fun and to spend time with people you care about. And in there, there's a natural space to also go for a walk or maybe go to your parents' cottage or spend some time by yourself in your room for an evening. And in those moments, that's where I believe God starts to do something in our hearts. And if we're not practicing silence and solitude, we're missing out on that. So I can, can I encourage you tonight, if you've never practiced silence and solitude, would you try that this week? So what did Jesus practice? Silence and solitude. How did he come? Eating and drinking. Lastly, why did Jesus come? Well, the, the reason Jesus came was to serve and to sacrifice. And if you were here in September, we did this series called Becoming, and we talked about the four values that we have here in young adults. And, and what those values are is that they're mission-minded, they're spirit-led, community-devoted, and servant leaders. We want to be servant leaders. And I remember when we came up with these values, someone asked me, they said, why servant leadership? And I said, well, I think that that's the identity that Jesus came to this life with. So if we want to follow Jesus, why not try and adopt the same identity that he had? So we want to be servant leaders. It says in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to sacrifice himself. But again, what does service and sacrifice have to do in a talk about community? Well, here's what it has to do is, see, community is all about love. And the greatest displays of love are to serve and to sacrifice for others. We read in scripture that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for another. We see in scripture, when it talks about marriage, the strongest imagery of Christ's love for the church Marriage is all about serving the other, submitting to the other, looking out for the other's best interest. When Paul, when he speaks to the early churches about love, he often is describing it in the context of restricting our desires and submitting to the group, to each other, for the good of each other, and not just looking out for ourselves as an act of love. And here's why this is so powerful, to serve and to sacrifice as a rhythm of our lives, is because it's so subversive to our culture. Our culture is not focused on serving and sacrificing for other people. Our culture is focused on power and on influence and on clout and on selfish gain and fulfillment instead of looking to serve and sacrifice for other people. What if, as Christians, we made our biggest priority to show Jesus' love 
through service and sacrifice. One of the things that stops us from this, though, is our desire for personal freedom. We love to just be our own person and have no one tell us how to live. But, but here's what happens. See, if, if you were to give money or sacrifice time or go the extra mile or lay down your preferences or think of another person first, what that does is it requires you to restrict your freedoms. Because if you give your money to the church, then you don't have as much money to buy whatever you want or travel or get a nicer car. And if you spend time with other people, then you don't get as much time for yourself and your Netflix binge. And if you commit to being a part of a young adult group, now you have one less night a week to do something else and sometimes there's gonna be conflicts and you'll have to choose and commit to your community at times when it's not easy. And even if, for example, you want to serve other people, say someone needed a ride to get to your group and you were picking them up and dropping them off every week, to serve them like that will require you to restrict your freedoms of your schedule because you'll have to change how you live when you eat to make that happen. So why should we do this? Why should we restrict our freedoms to serve and sacrifice for others? Well, I would argue because there's actually greater freedom on the other side. Let me explain. When I said my vows to my wife, Janae, our wedding vows, in many ways that was a vow of restriction. I was vowing to stay with her, to love her in sickness, in poverty, in worsening circumstances of any kind. You know, on Christmas, Janae was working and I got to go visit her and she works at a senior's facility and I got to see you know, all the seniors that she works with and, and the different states that they're in. And I saw this one man, he was going to visit his wife who was in that care facility. And as that man, you know, showed up, I just saw this picture of what marriage in a lot of ways truly is. You know, he shows up there, brings her gifts, brings her food, has to drive there every day, spend time with her, you know, navigate the challenges of someone becoming older, someone changing that you loved. And I thought about that and just went, man, that's what it looks like to serve and to sacrifice for someone else. To, to be there when their memory starts to fade, when they forget who you are. To be there when it's really hard, when they don't act like they used to. To be there when they're not as sexy or as fun as they used to be. But why would we do this? Why would we make vows in marriage to ever do such a thing? Because there's greater freedom. Here's why. Imagine that you're not the man visiting your wife. Imagine you're the wife. You're sick. You're lonely. You're scared. You don't know what's happening. Who's going to care for you? Who's there for you? If you have the committed relationship of marriage or even of community, you don't have to be afraid because you know that people care for you. You know that people are there for you, that people are going to come visit you and see you. And there's a freedom in that. That as you get older, you don't have to ask the question, is my spouse just going to leave me when I get ugly? Is my spouse just going to leave me when I now have to be in a care facility where a nurse has to take care of me? There's a freedom in knowing 
that someone's committed there for you. And here's the thing. It took restriction for there to be that freedom. But the call of Jesus is for that not to just be marriage, I think, but for that to be community, for that to be brothers and sisters, saying that we will commit to doing life with each other in such a way that gives a freedom to each other that I give a freedom to you and you give a freedom to me because we know that no matter what, we are there for each other. And it's gonna take us restricting our personal freedoms to achieve that. If you wanna have deep community, if you wanna have a community of friends and brothers and sisters that looks anything like a marriage, you know how many years that's gonna take? You know how much money that's gonna take? How much service and sacrifice it will take to develop that type of community? You don't get to do that when you just show up once a month to your group. You won't reach that. It's gonna take restrictions of your personal desires to live with other people for that amount of time. But what it gives you is the freedom of knowing that someone's committed to your well-being and to loving you and serving you. But you also have to commit to them. So if our desires to never be restricted, to avoid commitments, to keep our options open. I think what that does is it actually drives the anxiety and the fear and the insecurity that we see in our culture. Because each of us feels like no one's actually there for us if we don't have committed relationships. One of the biggest things right now in culture that a lot of people our parents' ages are worrying about, baby boomers are worrying about, is who's gonna be there for them in a couple years because they're not sure if they're gonna have a partner. They're not sure if they're gonna have kids who come visit. And they are afraid because there's not a committed community around them. How are we gonna change this? See, here's what I see in community. I see marriage as an example of community for a lot of us, of how we can serve and sacrifice for each other, how we can restrict our freedoms for the sake of greater freedom for others so that we can show them the love of Jesus. So here's what it's gonna take for us to be that kind of community, for us to experience that type of committed relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's gonna take forgiveness. In other words, giving up your freedoms of being mad and angry. It's gonna take accountability, which requires you to give up your freedom to do whatever you want and to hide sin and to not be vulnerable with others. It's gonna take acceptance which means giving up your desires and your preferences and your opinions and your comparisons and your ideals. You're free to have them, but you need to give them up if you're gonna have community. It means that you're gonna need to have meals. And that means giving up money and time and privacy and schedules and entertainment. And it's also gonna take silence and solitude, which means giving up distractions and comfort and time and fears and anxieties. That's what I think it takes if we wanna have communities of belonging. All of these are a form of service and sacrifice. For what? For the good of others? And so that we can love others and love God more. That's what community is about. Doing life with each other so that we can love God and love each other more. You know, Janae and I, we've seen many times firsthand what service and sacrifice looks like in a community and what it does. You know, we were in a young adult group last couple years in Edmonton, and our group had a lot of people with um, autism and with fetal alcohol and, and other conditions. And what that meant was that our group had to put a lot of work into, 
you know, making sure they had rides and, and putting extra energy into understanding how to communicate with them. It made it, made it more challenging to do things like go out for meals because often someone would have to pay for them. But here's what happened through the challenge, through the restricted freedom that there was through that, was that our community was closer. Our community was deeper. Our community had a greater sense of purpose for each other. Don't we all want more purpose? Don't we all want to understand what our purpose is? Like, don't we all want to know that our lives matter? But too often, we think that for our lives to matter, for us to make a difference, we have to go change the world through some charity or business, and all that stuff's great. I'm not saying it's wrong, but here's the thing that concerns me most, is that we're so focused on trying to change the world through that, that we forget to change the life of the person who's next to us. It's not that hard. It's simple, actually, what the gospel is about. It's how do we love God and love others? So the questions that we need to start asking, if you want to change the world, the question that you need to ask is, how do I change the world of the person who's next to me? How do I make them experience God's love? How do I serve and sacrifice for that person's well-being? How do I make sure that the new person's welcome? How do I make sure that people know that someone is there for them? So sickness or health or financial issues or whatever's going on in their family, that they know that I am there for them. If you want to change the world, then change someone's world. It's great to have lofty goals, but what if we just looked at those in front of us and said, how do I serve and sacrifice? How do I commit to a community so I can change your life and your life and your life and your life? That's how we're going to build these kinds of communities. Do you want that? If you want that, then let's change our rhythms. Here's why we serve and we sacrifice. I can call the band up now. The reason we serve and we sacrifice is because Jesus came and served us and then he sacrificed for us. Jesus came and restricted his freedoms. You know, Jesus was God. And when God came down through the person of Jesus, he came as a baby, an impoverished baby. Talk about restricting freedom. And he came to do what none of us could do, which is to live a perfect life. To live a perfect life to serve us, to sacrifice for us because we couldn't do it on our own. You know, back in Jewish culture, what they had to do was they had to sacrifice a lamb. It had to be blameless and without defect. And what Jesus did was when he came, he became the lamb to sacrifice himself for us so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for what we deserve. So why do we serve and sacrifice? Because someone's already done it for us. And out of our thanksgiving and understanding of the grace that we've been given, we want to serve and sacrifice for others so that we can change their lives, so we can show them love, so we can show them a community of belonging. Would you stand and, and pray with me tonight? God, thank you so much for every single young adult that's here. God, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, so that we could have an example of what it looks like to live for you. God, I pray as we looked at these rhythms of Jesus' life, of sharing meals, of having time alone with you, of serving and investing and sacrificing for other people's well-being, 
God, would we know what it looks like to reflect this in our lives? God, would you help each of us here tonight see which one of these areas you're calling us to grow in right now? How we can get better so that we can love others better for your sake, Jesus. God, if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't have that relationship with you yet, who maybe hasn't spent that time in silence and solitude with you ever, who maybe doesn't know the sacrifice that you gave for them, God, tonight, would your Holy Spirit come on this place? Spirit, would you come into people's hearts who haven't felt the warmth of your love before, who haven't felt belonging before, who hasn't felt like someone cares about them? God, would you show how much you care to everyone here? God, as we look to form communities in this coming year, God, would each of us know what part we are to play the part of the body that you've made us to be, the purpose that we have. God, show us that. God, work in each of our hearts tonight so that we could grow closer to you by practicing these rhythms. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if you found this valuable, would you consider sharing it with a friend that you think would benefit from it? Be sure to follow and subscribe if you haven't already. And we'd love if you left a review because that helps other people discover this content. If you're looking for more information on Sanctus Young Adults, check us out on Instagram, on YouTube, or through our website. Have a great rest of your day.